would invite you this morning to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. If you're using the Pew Bible uh, in front of you, it's page 519. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before reading uh, and studying His Word this morning. Father, we thank You for Your divine truth. We thank You for its clarity, for its sufficiency. We thank You that even here in this psalm, we see the Lord Jesus and our need for Him. May we see Him, whether it's for the first time or for the, for the 10,000th time. May we see our need for Him and grow in our delights and love and affection for that one who is crucified for sinners. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now in coming to the Psalms, I like to think of them as disciplines of grace. As instructions that are there to help us grow and mature in the Christian life. You see, as the Lord's redeemed people, we are called to submit to the authority of God's Word. And so we are to take heart and mind We are to take will and behavior, the entire self, all of who we are, and we are to bring it into willing submission to His authority. And this is where the Psalms help us on toward this end. The Psalms address the whole person. They grow us in grace. They offer us a contemplative analysis of our hearts, exposing that inner man showing us who we really are and growing us in Christ Jesus. And the Psalms, they they sort of act as a comprehensive physician's handbook. They truly address everything in life. And to borrow a phrase from David Powlison, they help us understand the sufficiency of Scripture to diagnose and to cure the soul. Now Psalm 131, as you'll notice from the title, is a song of ascents. There are 15 of these psalms beginning in 120 and going through Psalm 134. And most likely these were psalms that were used by the children of Israel as they made their way to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. As the people of God traveled from all over the geographical boundary of Israel there to that holy hill, to the temple of the Lord to worship God, these psalms would be recited. They would be passed on from one generation to the next They would be turned into song for the journey ahead. And so these songs of ascents all have common elements among them. They are brief in length. And it's that brevity that would make them easy for memorization and would aid in um, the work of meditation. There's a lot of repetition within these psalms. The repetitive nature would help the worshiper keep his focus upon the nature of the Lord. Now, we know from our own experience, when we gather on the Lord's Day, like today, with, with an extra or a le- one less hour of sleep, perhaps, we know how much work it can be at times to lay aside the burdens and the, carry, and the cares of our upcoming week, 
and to give our attention to the Lord, the whole purpose for which we gather. And this is where the Psalms of Ascent can help us with that repetitive nature of central truths focusing upon the worship of the Lord. The Songs of Ascent have a vivid imagery. It's this vivid imagery of the Psalms that makes them accessible. You see, we're not learning things in these Psalms that are only reserved to those who have uh, high levels of academic theological precision. But we are learning things that very much pertain to daily life. And it's the vivid imagery of these psalms that helps us make connection between deep and rich truths about the nature of the Lord and draw connections to our own life. And within these psalms, there is also hopeful anticipation. As the traveler is making his way to the city of the Lord, he is reminded of the faithfulness of his covenant God to redeem The faithfulness of the Lord to make good upon His promises to His people to protect them. His faithfulness to provide for their needs. As He makes this journey to that holy hill as a pilgrim, He is reminded that He is a pilgrim within this earthly life. And it's this pilgrim status that will ultimately culminate in worshiping the Lord forever in the house of God. And so these are all common elements that we find in the songs of ascent. And we see them here this morning in Psalm 131. Now, in speaking of this particular psalm, Charles Spurgeon says that it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It's only three verses in length, but to learn this discipline of humble contentment and trust in the Lord really takes a lifetime. And so where do we start? How do we begin growing in this discipline of contentment, this discipline of trusting in the Lord? Well, the first thing that we learn in verse 1 is the importance of humility and the way in which humility leads to trust. Now, humility is one of those things that can seem very elusive to us because can you really say that you are a humble person? And as soon as you say that, doesn't it seem as though humility is not true of you? Can you really ascribe that attribute to yourself and boast that you have humility? And yet the interesting thing here is that David in this first verse, which is really autobiographical in nature, has actually seemed to master something. He has learned to put his trust in the Lord, and it has really led to an inner peace and quietude. And I think it really starts here with the opening address, O Lord. Now we see this language of lordship throughout the Psalms as we see it in all caps there printed in our English translations. And because of its frequency throughout the Psalms, it might be something that we quickly slip over. But you see, it's a covenantal address. It is a title that can only be spoken in loving adoration toward the God who has faithfully redeemed me. Of course, anyone can say the words, Lord... But to cry out to the Lord, the covenant God, is only possible because of the application of redemption to my life. By crying out to the one who is Lord, the covenant God, the one who is faithful to redeem, the one who is unchangeable in his nature, the one who is unwavering in his purposes, David, you see, is putting God where he belongs and in turn putting himself in the right place. Now, we'll come back to this theme in a moment, but 
I think because of our pride in life, we are often like Alice in Wonderland. You know how she was always disoriented wherever she was. She was always too big, wasn't she? Bursting out of a home. You remember how she was never the right size, but continually in this disoriented state. And I think that we have the same problem in our own lives, simply too big in our own eyes. We think too highly of ourselves. And so this concept of lordship is vital to put us where we belong and to make us the right size. At the beginning of humility is to remember who we are and to remember the one whom we serve. We are to trust in the Lord who rules over every situation and circumstance in life. And if you serve a God who is absolutely sovereign over heaven and earth, absolutely sovereign over every minute detail in your own life, then you will never be in a situation in which you cannot trust him. Corey Tenboom said, never be afraid to trust the unknown future to a known God. We may not know what tomorrow holds, but we serve a God who not only knows, but who rules, rules over tomorrow, and who is bringing about his divine purposes. And all of us certainly need to grow to trust in the Lord more. But you cannot trust him if you are preoccupied with yourself. You cannot trust him unless you know him. And you cannot know him unless he is your Lord, the one who has saved you from your sins in the Lord Jesus. And so David goes on to explain what this humble trust ought to look like in our lives. Notice first that it is a heart that is not lifted up. And when we talk about the heart, we are talking about the complex inner workings of man's nature. Paul Tripp says that uh, the heart is the causal core of the self. And so everything that we say flows from the heart. All of the choices that we make originate there within the heart. The things that we desire, the things that we convince ourselves are appropriate to dwell upon within our minds, all of those things begin in the heart. Proverbs 4 says that the heart is the wellspring of life. Guard it. Keep it with all vigilance. And so if my heart is not to be lifted up, if my heart is not to be proud, then I think the first thing that this text drives us to acknowledge about ourselves, about our own nature, is that we are a proud people. I have no problem at all thinking of myself, thinking of my desires and my preferences. I'm the most pleasant person in the world to be around when I get my way. (laughs) But when someone gets in the way, preventing me from having the, the things that I desire, I become frustrated and agitated. And why? Because I'm proud. And so if I'm going to learn humility, if I'm going to learn to lay aside my pride and my overinflated, selfish heart, then I must choose not to focus upon myself, but upon God. Instead of a preoccupation with the self, we need a preoccupation with the Lord. You know, in the therapeutic culture in which we live, we are told that we need to give more attention to ourselves, to love ourselves more, to analyze our own wants and desires, to think of how we can bring greater and greater happiness into our own lives. We're a narcissistic culture, and it's simply expected that we would live for ourselves. And so we're going to get no help from the world around us in this calling to seek the Lord's glory. 
Humility begins with a reorientation of preoccupation away from the self to the Lord God. I will not lift up my heart in pride, in arrogance, in self-interest, but I will lift up my heart in humble submission to God. J.I. Packer says that our goal in life should be that we are God-centered in our thoughts and God-fearing in our hearts. Well, what is the second thing that he seeks to lay aside in verse 1? My eyes are not raised too high. Or as some translations capture it, my eyes are not haughty. And so while pride begins within the heart, you see it manifests itself in looking down upon others. It's an exaltation of the self and sort of a looking down your nose upon other people. Now, a a number of men have been gathering on Friday mornings to study uh, portions of Calvin's Institutes. It's an open group for all men. That's my plug for that. But a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the tendency that we have to compare ourselves with our fellow sinful men. And of course, when we do that, we can always find someone who has an attribute in that area of life that we might struggle with that's much worse than myself. We can sort of cast people like caricatures you might see in a political cartoon, you know, exaggerating the weaknesses of another in order to feel better about ourselves. And Calvin says that we have this innate love of self, and it's that love of self that blinds us to our true condition. That this love we have for ourselves convinces us that everything about us is desirable. We convince ourselves that we have everything that we need within the self for a good and for a happy life. And Calvin says this is very simply sweet seduction. One author I was reading this past week says that the essence of snobbery is arranging to make yourself feel superior at the expense of other people. We have a disease, we could call it a disease of comparisonitis, a disease of continually comparing ourselves to others, always positioning the self in some form of competition, never being satisfied, but always lacking contentment, overly concerned with what others think of us. We can't seem to resist using another person's flaws against him or congratulating the self on our superior taste, our sensitivity of opinion the uniqueness of our own point of view. The attempt to separate ourselves from others is pervasive. It's not enough to have arrived, but other people must be made to understand that they haven't. And it's this preoccupation with self, you see, that David has learned to lay aside. To choose not to have haughty eyes means acknowledging that it is all of grace that I am saved from my helpless and hopeless condition. And so I don't look down upon others because I believe that I am more theologically precise than someone else. But instead, in humility, I recognize that any insight that I might have into the truth of God's Word is only because of His grace in my life. When I see obedience in my life or obedience in the life of my children or another, that's no place for me to take pride because by nature I resist the law of God. Instead... I give thanks to the gracious work of the Holy Spirit who alone can create and work such obedience within. Any desire that I have to read God's Word, even a desire to gather with the Lord's people on a Sunday morning, is no place for me to feel better about myself as I compare myself to my neighbors. But it is all evidence of the Holy Spirit and of God's grace in my life. 
And so an upward looking gaze at God's glorious, holy nature puts me in my proper place and transforms the way that I look at others and the way in which I view the world around me. Looking at the greatness and the majesty of the Lord enables me to see other people not as those to look down upon, but as image bearers who are in need of God's grace just as much as I am. An upward gaze at the Lord enables me to look at the world not through the lenses of anxiety or fear or worry, but instead trust and confidence. As you humble yourself, you see the supreme lordship of God ruling over all. See, to start with the Lord and not ourselves, to start with Him and His rule over all gives you a completely different perspective on viewing the world. And so I do not raise up my eyes too high. What is the third thing that David seeks to lay aside in verse 1? I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And here again, you see, it's all about understanding and delighting in natures. That is, understanding and delighting in the nature of God, and understanding and delighting in the nature of man, in who the Lord has made us to be. God's nature is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Man's nature is finite, at all times dependent, and fickle. David Wells says, in a postmodern view, we are at life's center. In a biblical view, we are not. It is God who is life's center. And so everything in the world around us tells us that we are at the center of life. And it is this message that we must intentionally fight against. Are we acknowledging who we are and who the Lord is? Are we delighting in who God is? Or are we frustrated by such things? Think just as an example of our finite nature. Do you delight in your finitude? Do you actually rest in the Lord at your limitations? Or do you just get frustrated in life because you never seem to have enough time to do what you want to do? Do you see how that frustration perhaps is really a failure to rest in the Lord? You want an attribute that is His alone. And then you couch that frustration in pious language. We act as though when we overcommit ourselves or overextend ourselves that that's an admirable quality in life. When instead, perhaps it's a desire to be God rather than to trust Him. To be Him rather than to rest in Him. And perhaps it's a frustration with our own limitations instead of a delight in our finite nature. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Crazy Busy, which I know a number of you have, have read... He asks, what does it say about me that I am frequently overwhelmed? What do I need to learn about myself? What biblical priorities am I not believing? I think we could add, what truths about God's nature am I failing to believe? What truths about His nature am I failing to delight in? What truths about His nature am I failing to rest in? What divine commands am I ignoring that I should obey? What self-imposed commands am I obeying that I should ignore? I think much of our restlessness, much of our pride, much of our failure to trust in the Lord is because we simply don't believe that He has our best interest in view. We want to inform Him rather than listen to Him. We want to impose our will upon Him rather than allowing Him to impose His will upon us. 
And it's really an issue of authority. Am I going to bow before his loving authority and rest in his divine nature? Or am I going to continue to resist and fight against him? And notice that David is learning where to draw the line. I will not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Those things that belong to the eternal counsel of God, I will trust to him and I will rest in him. We read in 1 Peter chapter 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. And so in these three denials, David is stating what he is seeking to put off. And I think what we need to do is to look at how each of these things are true in our own lives to one degree or another. Proud hearts, haughty eyes, a preoccupation with the self. And true humility is learning to put such things off and to trust in the Lord by delighting in who He is. So what else is needed in this discipline of contentment? What else is needed to grow in trust of the Lord? Well, verse 2, it's an inner quietude. It's a stillness before the Lord. You see, David here has learned a calm and quiet inner trust toward the Lord. Something has happened on the inside that has resulted in outward change. He has been enabled to take some truth about God's nature and apply it to his own heart until there is noticeable change in his life. And isn't this what we long for in the Christian life? To be transformed by God's grace. For there to be something evidently different in our lives as we grow and as we mature through this life. For there to be real and lasting change at this heart, at this core level of our being. It's an appropriate longing. It's an appropriate desire to have such consistency in our lives. It's appropriate for us to desire Christ's likeness. For that's our calling as God's people. And so for David, where there was once agitation and inner restlessness, now there is trust and rest in the Lord. And the image here is quite vivid. A nursing child is constantly restless and rooting until he gets his desires fulfilled. He's agitated and anxious. He can't just sit and be still on his mother's lap. He wants immediate satisfaction. And his one desire and longing for that satisfaction is all-consuming. But a weaned child is able to sit and rest in his mother's lap peacefully and contentedly. Something that once overwhelmed him, something that once meant everything to him, is now nothing. And he can rest in something much greater sitting in the arms of the one who loves him, who cares for him, and who is protecting him. Not only is this an amazing picture of comfort and of rest in the Lord, but it's also, I think, a great picture of our own restlessness. And I think what the text is pushing us to ask is, what is it within you? What is it within that inner man that is causing restlessness and noise? Maybe you tend to play the if-only game in your life with your own heart. I might be able to trust in the Lord more if only He would ease up a bit on those trials of life. I might be able to lay aside that inner noise if only I weren't so busy. 
If only I had more compliant children. If only I had a more sympathetic spouse. But the more that we play that if-only game, the more the restlessness and the noise continues getting louder and louder. And maybe that inner noise comes because of the busyness of life. Again, to young, we are here and there and everywhere. We are distracted. We are preoccupied. We can't focus on the task in front of us. We don't follow through. We don't keep our commitments. We are so busy with a million pursuits that we don't even notice when important things slip away. Busyness can ruin our joy. We become more prone to anxiety, resentment, impatience, and irritability. Busyness can rob our hearts. For most of us, it isn't heresy or rank apostasy that will derail our profession of faith. It's all the worries of life. You've got car repairs. Then your water heater goes out. The kids need to see a doctor. You haven't done your taxes yet. Your checkbook isn't balanced. You're behind on your thank you notes. You promised your mother you'd come over and fix a faucet. You're behind on wedding planning. Your boards are coming up. You have more applications to send out. Your dissertation is due. Your refrigerator is empty. Your lawn needs mowing. Your curtains don't look right. Your washing machine keeps rattling. (laughs) This is life for most of us. And it's choking out spiritual life and vitality. We are restless and our hearts are noisy. We are anxious. We are irritable. We are proud. We're opinionated and we have a sense of superiority. We judge and we belittle others. We have a plan for everyone else's life, how they should spend their time, how they should treat me. And you see how that inner restlessness, how that inner noise is just a manifestation of a proud heart. We want to please other people. We try to do too many things to meet the expectations of others around us because we want them to think well of us. We really want that pat on the back and we want their approval. And so the inner peace that David is talking about is deliverance from this type of inner noise. It's deliverance from that inner monologue that tells us that everyone else is the problem, not me. This is the pride, you see, that we need to be delivered from. We need to be delivered from ourselves. We need to be delivered, you see, from seeing that this is the problem in life. The problem in life is me. And we need to grow to understand our reliance upon the Lord. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And think of the way in which Jesus himself mastered this inner peace and trust. We heard earlier from Mark chapter 4, there was Jesus in that raging sea upon the boat. He had such trust and such delight in his heavenly Father that he is able to rest in his Father's hand. You see, this is a quietude that can only come as we grow to trust in the word of the Lord. There is nothing more important in your life than hearing from the word of the Lord. Is there in your own life a listening to his voice? Have you stilled yourself so that you can hear his word of truth? To be silent and to be still before him is to allow his word of truth to speak authoritatively in my life, to penetrate my mind and my heart. And we will never make time with God in his word a priority unless we believe that this is the best thing that we can ever do. If we were to open up any of our calendars, it would be evidently clear from the time that we spend that the cares and worries of this life seem much more important to us than time in God's word. 
But to stop that inner noise is to listen to his word and to rest in him. And lastly, in verse 3, we learn that this contentment and trust in the Lord comes because of a covenantal hope. A covenantal hope. You see, the cry here is to Israel. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. It's a cry that goes out for all of God's redeemed people to listen. Listen to the one who is your king. Listen to the one who has lived these things. Learn from his example as he calls you to follow in his ways. Now perhaps David, as he wrote this psalm later in his life, was able to master these things to a large degree. But we know that his life was not always marked by such trust. His life was filled with discontentment, with a restlessness, with not trusting in the Lord's provision, and it led to murder and to adultery. And so as much as he grew and matured as he aged, we need someone much more than a weak, fallible human example. We need a great king who lived this way his entire life for us. You see, the call is for us to hope in him, hope in the Lord. Hope in Jesus. And so it all comes back, you see, to belief. Do you believe that God is who He says He is in His very own Word? Do you believe that He is faithful to save? Do you believe that He is trustworthy to redeem? Do you believe that He is powerful enough to make good on His promises? You see, hope is one of those things, it's not like icing on the cake, like you kind of take it or leave it. But hope is essential for Christian living because it's connected to belief. When hope is lacking, it's because you don't trust in God. A lack of hope is unbelief. A lack of hope is disobedience. Biblical hope, you see, is a confident look to the future because it is anchored in the unchanging nature of God. Hope is a confident look to the future because of what he has already accomplished in the past. Listen to the hope of these verses. Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They are fleeting. They are wasting away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And when should you hope in the Lord? Now and forevermore. Is there hope and trust in your life in the present? You don't wait for your circumstances in life to change. You don't wait for that difficult person to be a little easier to live with. 
You don't wait until that physical pain goes away. But you are called to hope in the Lord now. And it can be a hope that grows, that matures, a hope that is refined throughout this earthly life as it culminates in eternity. Again, David Wells, he says, in speaking of the Psalms of David, knowing God is itself what deepened David's thirst to know him even more. The more that he knew God, the more he had a hunger and a thirst to know him even more. You see, if you're here this morning, and if your hope is not in the Lord Jesus, then you know that your heart is agitated. You know that your heart is restless. And it is not restless because you have yet to make peace with yourself. Your heart is not restless because you have to make peace with others or your circumstances in life. But it is restless because you have not found peace with God. St. Augustine said it rightly, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Our hearts are restless until they come to the Lord Jesus alone, who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hope in the Lord, people of God. Hope in the Lord now and forevermore. May the Lord be pleased to take these few short verses, deep and rich in their eternal truth, and to write them upon our hearts.